As um, you heard when Robin read the passage to you this morning, it has a heading in most Bibles, uh, the supremacy of the Son of God, or the supremacy of Christ, or the supremacy of Jesus. And as you know, uh, in the, uh, over the past few Sundays, the exception of last Sunday, which was a all-aid service, um, we've been we've started going through uh, Colossians, and so this uh, passage, although it has a heading and is a little sort of uh, paragraph within the Bible, follows on from what we read uh, before. So. In the preceding verses, which we've looked at some weeks ago now, we would see that it's the Son into whose kingdom we are brought, out of darkness into light. That's a description of the Christian experience. Now, I think perhaps some of us understand that easier than others. For example, I became a Christian when I was a child. So it's not really so easy for me to grasp that. But I believe it. God has brought me from a, a way of life that would have been very different into his light. Um, so the verse immediately preceding this chapter tells us of the Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So it talks about the Son. The Son is Jesus. Our songs this morning, thank you, Adrian, for those that you chose, and some of which I've chosen, they've all referred to Jesus. As I said to the children uh, earlier on, we're going to talk about Jesus. He's the centre of everything this morning. And in fact, that first chapter of Colossians, he's at the centre of that. This is the person whom we have come uh, to speak of. I, I say that by way of introduction because uh, that's what I want you to go away with, the person of the Lord Jesus not, not, I don't think I've got any jokes this morning, or you know, any sort of clever turns of phrase or anything like that. Simply Jesus. Now, last week you looked at uh, creation in Genesis, so I understand you had a good time and a fun time looking at the, uh, the record in Genesis chapter 1 of uh, creation. And... Um, you would have read there when it got to God creating us, creating mankind, that he created mankind in his own image. And the first verse we uh, read this morning in our reading tells us that the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. In him were all things created, things in heaven and earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or powers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. What is the time? <laughs> There's hours of it in there. We're told he is the exact likeness of God. We were created in the image of God. A copy, a reflection. This Jesus we are speaking about is God. He is the exact likeness of God. In Hebrews, we're told the sun is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. 
Now, we don't know who wrote Hebrews. It might have been Paul. It might have been somebody else. But isn't that the same thing we just read in Colossians? That's the wonder of the Bible. Don't let anybody ever tell you the Bible contradicts itself. It does not. It says the same thing in different ways. But that's the wonder of it. This is the person of whom we come to speak this morning. We all know, we know those well-known verses in John uh, chapter 1, don't we? The Word became flesh and so on. And in verse 14 we read, The Word, Jesus, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John could write that because that was his real experience. He met Jesus as we were speaking to the children this morning. We haven't done that in that sense, that physical sense. But John had. And so he could speak of what he knows. What's this, what this chapter speaking to us about? It's telling us that the Lord Jesus isn't just the baby in a manger. He is, we sang it, Emmanuel, God with us. He's God who came to dwell with us, took human form. Christians not, Christmas is not far behind us. And we thought of Emmanuel, God with us then, didn't we? As I was uh, putting this together the other day, I don't know how it is for other people, but as I sort of sit at my desk and look at this, look at that, and think of that, pray, things come to mind. And this hymn came to my mind. I think I've shared this with you before. A guy called Benjamin Hanby, who lived in the 1800s for just 34 years. He didn't live very long. He wrote quite a few hymns. And this is probably his well-known one. It begins, Who is he in yonder stall? At whose feet the shepherds fall. The chorus says, Tis the Lord, the King of glory. No, it doesn't. It says, Tis the Lord, a wondrous story. Tis the Lord, the King of glory. At his feet we humbly fall. Crown him, crown him, Lord of all. And the hymn goes on through the Lord's earthly life. And the last verse says, Who is he? that from his throne rules through all the worlds alone. Tis the Lord, a wondrous story. Tis the Lord, the King of glory. We sometimes need to be reminded it's not the storybook Jesus that we're speaking about. It's the King of glory. It's God himself who became a man to dwell here on earth and live that wondrous life. In this, these chapters we're shown his supremacy, his supremacy in creation, the creator of everything, the sustainer of everything. He created everything and he holds everything together. That's great. But think of this. He is your creator. He is my creator. Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. Did that last week in Genesis. You see, I grapple with a lot of things these days. Pity we weren't here on last Sunday. Because there are a lot of people who use the science 
argument to dismiss the claims of God, to dismiss the claims of Christ, because it's not evidential enough for them. And in doing that, it's like a get-out clause. Because if I can't prove it, if I, I don't, I'm not answerable. To speak about um, sin, which we will later on, you know, uh, our evil behaviour and so on, as it uh, refers to in uh, Colossians. Well, that doesn't mean anything because there isn't a God to whom I have to answer. That's a sort of cop-out cause. But we've come to speak this morning of the Lord of glory, of God becoming a man, of Jesus who is the supreme one. Supremacy in creation. Now if we stopped here, if Paul had had nothing more to write, then that would be great, wouldn't it? It would explain to us about our great God, the God of creation. It would explain to us about his son, Jesus. But there would be nothing for us. There would be no hope, no cause for any joy. But he goes on and says, he is the head of the body, the church. So here now is his supremacy over us, you and me, those of us who are believers. Those of us of whom that verse spoke that I showed the children this morning. Yet having not seen, you believe. Those who are part of the church, the body of believers, God's people here on earth. Who is our head? The Lord Jesus Christ. The church of which we are a part is not simply a collection of like-minded people. It's a, a living thing. It's a body. Uh, time and time and time again, in uh, the scriptures, the church is described as a body. And there's a reason for that. The Holy Spirit, in inspiring these men to write, wanted people to see that it's a living, breathing, organic thing. It's made up of people, not of uh, ideas or hierarchies. In Ephesians we read, God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything. For the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. A body cannot function without a head. This is the source of power and thought and direction and leadership. And we are privileged to be part of his church, his body. Elsewhere we're described as the bride of Christ, looking forward to that day when we'll be united with him in a heavenly eternity. We belong to him. We're also told he's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. There's no area of the Christian's life and experience where the Lord Jesus is not at the head. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Here, the demonstration of his supremacy is in his resurrection. 
Now you know that Jesus wasn't the first person to be raised from the dead. Remember Lazarus. Remember the widow at Nain and her son. But Jesus was the first person who rose from the dead under his own power. Nobody else did it. He did it. He rose from the grave. Up from the grave he arose. A mighty triumph for his foes. We love to sing that one at Easter, don't we? And because of his resurrection, we can look forward to a resurrection. Paul in Corinthians talks about him as the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. He, Jesus was the first to be raised and we follow. So his supremacy in creation over the church and as a risen saviour and all those things give us a hope and a focus and point us to the person of Jesus, the head of everything. We know, uh, come on, because we're moving through this quite rapidly, you'll be thankful to know. We now come on uh, to an explanation as to where this church, this body of believers, this body of people of whom the Lord is the head, where that, where that comes from. How we have that relationship with God through his Son. Here is the Gospel. Here is the good news. Here is the Christian message. So, what do we read? Through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God, were enemies in your minds because of your evil behaviour. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. That is good news. As I uh, read these verses, uh, that passage in Philippians Chapter 2, again, Paul's writings came to mind. Remember, he, he was writing to the Philippians, trying to get them to take care of each other, to avoid strife, and so on. And he uses the example of Christ. And he, he writes, Who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. This is God's plan of redemption. Forgive me for using the Bible words, but this is God's plan to buy us back to himself. In, uh, again, Paul writing in Corinthians, in uh, chapter 5, he says, God was 
reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. The same idea. God was bringing us back to himself. We see our state without Christ. It was described in those verses, alienated from God, enemies in our minds. That's our natural state. That's the way we are. That's what our uh, sinful nature uh, does to us. It's described here as our evil behaviour. It means doing the things we want to do, leaving God out of account, not feeling accountable to him. So that's the problem. And then the remedy is the cross, isn't it? We read that. We thought of it this morning as we shared bread and wine together. How the Lord, Emmanuel, God with us, God himself, allowed men to put him on a cross. Where from his wounds his blood was shed and where he gave his life with a purpose. The purpose was that through his death we might live where he made that once for all sacrifice for sin. That's God's plan, to bring us back to himself. By putting our faith in Jesus and his death on our behalf, we are redeemed, we're brought back. We're bought because, as we were reminded as we shared these ends this morning, a price was paid. Jesus' blood, you're not bought with precious things, such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus. Sorry, you're not bought with, come on, I got it wrong, what's the right word? Corruptible things, such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus. That's the contrast. If we put our faith in him, if we trust in him, because... To do that, there's something else you have to do. And we often forget this in our gospel preaching. You have to acknowledge that sin. You have to realise that you are alienated from God. You have to realise that your sin keeps you from him. You've seen that illustration. Perhaps you haven't. Let me explain it to you. That illustration of the chasm. You've seen it. If we had a flip chart, I'd draw it for you. But I'll illustrate it. Look, there's a cliff here. There's a cliff here. There's a chasm in between. There's God. The chasm is our sin. That's our alienation. That's the gap between us and God. How are you going to bridge it? All the good works in the world, all the church attendance, all the Bible reading, all, none of it. It won't do it. Because it won't change who we are. So what fills, bridges the chasm? A cross. That's what bridges the chasm. When Jesus died, he made a way for us to reach God because he took our sins. He bore our sins in his own body on the tree, on the cross. So that's this gospel message. But you know, there's more to it than that. It's a kind of Gospel plus, because we're told that those sins which so plague us and 
separate us from God, they're forgiven and they're removed. We're told we become holy in his sight. Paul, writing to the Corinthians again, put it this way. God made him who had no sin, that's Jesus, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We might become as if we never had any sin at all. As if we were really good people. It's not something we deserve. It's not something we've earned. It's the evidence of God's grace, his free gift to us, if we will but receive it. Now, that's the gospel message. That's the good news. We've rehearsed it this morning because it's here. It's in God's word. Now, when the children come down, I don't know what they're going to tell us. We won't have time to go through all the difficult questions. But they may ask us what we've learned. So I thought I'd give you a prompt, because usually what happens? <laughs> well, they, the children obviously to do better than us, don't they? You know, we say, well, what have you done to children? And they come out and they, they tell us what they, they've done. And then uh, Laurie says to us, and what did you learn? Well, we all kind of look a bit black and somebody muttered something from the back or something. Right. We've rehearsed together this morning the gospel. The good news, that our creator God became man, so that by his death he made it possible for us to be restored to a relationship with God. By his resurrection he gives us the promise, the hope of eternity with him. Now that's my version. You can express it many different ways. But that's what we've gone through this morning, the good news of the gospel, that we have a great and mighty God who has stooped into time in order that he might rescue us from the consequence of our sins. Now, we need some application. So the first question is, can you identify with the Colossian Christians? You'll know from the, uh, the, the beginning, the opening verses, he writes about their faith in Christ Jesus. Do you have that faith? Are you reconciled to God through Jesus? Or are you still in that place of enmity with him? You may be on a journey, but you're either there or you're not. Secondly, if we are believers, if we are members of that church of which Jesus is the head, we have a responsibility. What do the concluding verses say? If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. So what are we to do? Continue in our faith. That, of course, is a sermon again in itself. But it's a challenge for us as we face the week before us, isn't it? How we respond to all the various circumstances and situations which we meet. In those situations, will our faith be evident? Will we stand firm? And this gospel, this good news, are we prepared as Paul was 
to share it with others in the way we live and where opportunity arises in our conversation. We're called to live out our faith. In telling the Colossians to do this, Paul gives the example of himself. I, Paul, have become a servant. So what about you? What about me?